and welcome to CEO Stories from the Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce. If, like me, you like exploring what makes business leaders and entrepreneurs tick, then this is the podcast for you. Every month we delve into the mind of one of the region's leading or up-and-coming CEOs. My name is Henrietta Brody, I'm the Chief Executive of the Chamber and your host. Today I'm joined by Rachel Roberts, founder and CEO of the multi-award winning Spotty Dog Communications. Hello Rachel. Morning and thanks for inviting me on. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Now, for those listeners who might not have come across you yet, tell us a little bit about you and your business. Well, Spotty Dog was founded in 2010, so we've been about 12 years. I've been working in public relations for about 25 years. Spotty Dog was founded as an independent consultancy, um, really focused on best of breed consultancy delivered by pedigree people. And that's absolutely fundamental what we're about. Great people doing great work. Fantastic. And uh, regular listeners to the podcast will know we like to start exploring our chief exec's journeys by going right back in time and looking at what would sort of 10 year old Rachel think about what you're doing now? I think we've had one guest so far out of 10 episodes who's turned around and gone, oh, I'm doing exactly what I thought I'd be doing. But how about yourself? Uh, what, What would 10 year old Rachel think about your career journey? Um, Ten-year-old Rachel would be completely unimpressed that I'm working in an office because it was a pledge after doing work experience and spending two weeks in an office that I thought that was a terrible way of spending your time. And so I was really inspired to uh, pursue a career in the military because I love the idea of working with people, being in the outdoors. I was really into climbing, mountaineering. So I thought a military career would be a fantastic opportunity for me. Unfortunately, I was medically discharged. Um, it, it occurred that I had epilepsy, which just part way into my training was something that was dis- uh, discovered. So I happened to be friends with someone who worked in the PR industry and who said, well, you're not going to be in the army. Why don't you uh, join the you know, kind of PR sector? Which at the time it was sort of, it, you know, an opportunity opens um, its door and that's actually fundamental to kind of what's driven me. If you see an opportunity, jump into it. So it was something that I didn't think about too much. But actually, um, if the door opens, grab it with both hands. And so that's really driven kind of um, my ethos all the way through, I guess, my career. Turning those challenges into opportunities. So with that then, was the military your first real job? Was that the sort of first career you went into? Yeah, I mean, I trained. I joined when I was 16. So um, I was training for four years. Um, I went to the Army Sixth Form Military College um, and then went on to the Army University. So for for, um, for a number of years, I was running around in green, pursuing a technical, um, a technical education in maths, physics and engineering. Um, the pathway was to take me on to the technical parts of the um, armed forces. Um, and so, yeah, for four years, I was surrounded by fantastic people who were um, great leaders, um, who really embodied the sense of working together as a team, but actually, you know, could could um, achieve fantastic things intellectually because we were working in sort of engineering and sciences, so working with incredibly clever people, but also people that could, you know, kind of run very fast and uh, have completely um, achieve fantastic physical uh, challenges as well. So it was kind of the best world. It was like being in an episode of the Krypton Factor for four years, I would say. And how did you then find that transition into PR? Because that, that's really interesting to me that, you know, you're very sort of technically minded, sort of maths, physics, engineering. And sometimes it can feel like people say, like careers that are based around languages, around communication, almost seem separate pathways to that that sort of more technical side but how did did you find that how did you find that transition 
Um, it's really interesting, actually, because I think the PR industry has, a ter- has done a terrible job of promoting our own reputation. I think PR consultancy shares more in common with management consultancy. Um, absolutely, we're in a creative space. But when a client comes to me, they've got a challenge. It's always a business challenge. And they've kind of got to achieve 10 different things. Um, budget plays a part. Time plays a part. Lots of facts are in play. Fundamentally, when you're trying to tell a story and represent an industry, you have to understand technically what the trigger points are. So a client might come to me in retail, banking and finance, and I have to very quickly understand the dynamics of asset-based finance or, you know, incredibly complex um, uh, information. We currently work with a client in EV charging. So at the moment, we're delving into the depth of battery technology and rapid charging and, you know, the technical information. So the ability to um, grasp your head around a difficult subject and then translate it into information that the rest of the world can understand is a really important part of being a great PR consultant. It's not all opening bars and uh, the absolute fabulous lifestyle. And I think if businesses could really understand the demands and dynamics of great PR practice, they would understand, um, you know, they're the best team to have behind you when you're trying to change or develop your business or engage with the new audience. So perhaps a surprising amount in common with that military side of sort of assessing a situation, working together as a team to resolve it, translating into a completely different industry. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things we were taught through military training is when you're going on on patrol, you have to always consider what if you attacked over there? What if you attacked behind you? What if you attacked in front of you? You had to constantly think about scenario planning and contingency planning. And that's something that I use in my my kind of uh, business approach today. Of course, you have a plan. And people say um, no plan ever survives first contact. And that's incredibly true. When you're working in the PR landscape, so many factors affect uh, what you do, the political, economic, social, technology factors and people, of course. So uh, you have a plan, but you have to think, well, if that factor changes, what do I do? And being very quick and agile to respond is really, really important. So I absolutely do think there's a lot of great stuff that you learn through military training that has application in the real world. Brilliant. So you'd you'd taken that first step, you'd entered the PR industry. What happened then? How did your career evolve? Where did you start in PR? I was lucky enough to be given incredible opportunities. My first boss said to me, I have this lady that comes in and she spends all week doing one job and I think it could be done in two days. And if you can get this job done, I'll teach you new things. And so I came in and I had a, a job where every day I had to open an envelope full of 100 press cuttings. I had to photocopy them five times, mount them in a scrapbook and then write a little report to the chief exec. And this job could be done, could be done in, yeah, 10 hours. So I did it really quickly. And then um, my boss said, well, great, do you want to have this um, project here or try this? I want you to start answering the phone when the media call and take notes on what they need, um, ask them what their deadline is, ask them what their story is. So I learned on the job. And that's pretty typical, actually, of our industry, that uh, you have graduates coming out now that have degrees in PR, media communications, but actually most of the real-world experience happens when they cut their teeth learning on the trade. So I was really lucky that I was given opportunities. I then moved on to London, uh, worked for a massive London consultancy, and they offered me a job, and at the time I was freelancing, and I said, well... I'm paid pretty well as a freelancer, um, so I'd love to stay with you. But um, you know, kind of the, the the dynamics aren't really matching up here. And they said, "Well, we have a job as an account director, so that's at that pay point." So I said, "Okay, I can do that." 
And it was incredible because I was only about 20, 23. And it's the kind of role that you would get normally when you've got several more years experience. But I saw an opportunity and I worked really hard. I worked really hard. But um, because if you're learning at the same time as delivering, you've got to do twice as much work. But that investment in time really paid off because then I got the opportunities and I could get progression. So, you know, I was really happy that I did that. Some of my friends were off on Club 1830 holidays and, you know, having a lot of social time. I worked really, really hard, but that has paid off for me. And that's the choice I made. So I don't regret it. Well, I'm quickly gathering that you're very driven, you're very focused. At this point in your story, you're 23 and you're already on your second career and in a senior position. At what point did you firstly decide to come back to Birmingham and secondly, decide to found your own business? Well, I'm originally from the Midlands. Uh, I'd moved around um, a bit um, as part of my military experience. I'd acquired a husband along the way who uh, was in the military. and we, we got posted to these fantastic places um join the army see the world and we saw reading ipswich salisbury <laughs> um and after moving and having to commute um to keep pursuing my career i said right i'm coming back to the midlands reconnected with my friends and family and uh, we got posted to the midlands and i was able to get a job in birmingham and that was back in i think 2004 so i worked for a fantastic consultancy here in the midlands um they're now called grayling prior to that they were called harrison cowley really well respected um and i was there for um seven eight years and then I had my first uh, little boy and I wanted more kids and but I also having been there for a long time I um, wanted to change roles and I just felt I didn't want to go interviewing for another role knowing that I wanted more kids so um, I decided to start up as a freelancer and I started Spotty Dog absolutely with the best of breed intentions I wanted to do work my way um, I was still 100% committed to um, doing brilliant work but I wanted the flexibility to juggle the family and uh, the idea was I'd, I'd be a freelancer um, under the banner of Spotted Dog for a couple of years and then go back to a proper job but of course the plan has completely not gone to plan <laughs> and uh, now I'm really proud we've got a team of 20 we work with incredible um, clients sort of, uh, 12 years on and I've managed to juggle the responsibility of raising my kids they're now 11 and 14 um, I think they know as much about PR as I did when I started in the industry. They hear all the conversations as I'm sort of juggling um, uh, with them, driving in the car and sort of uh, providing counsel to clients. And it's a, it's fantastic as a woman to be able to pursue a career and achieve um, really great things, work with fantastic people. But also, you know, I've never missed a single sports day and I'm really proud of that. Fantastic. It's given you that ability to, to balance both sides. Um, now, I have to ask, Spotted Dog Communications, you referred to pedigree, best in class. I think your team are referred to as the Porson Pack. Do you like dogs? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, I mean, who, who doesn't really? And I mean, the name of Spotty Dog, whenever we meet anybody, people remember us. I mean, it's the best decision I've ever made in, in relation to the brand, which again, is not something I thought hugely about. It just came in a creative moment, has stuck with ever since. Um, and yeah, we even have a dog policy at work. Um, so over lockdown, when lots of people got dogs, that wasn't a problem for us. We've had dogs in our office for the last five, six, seven years. And for sort of mental health benefits, really important. And, you know, sometimes we use them, we go out for a walk with them, we have our walk and talk meetings. It's really a great way that when you've kind of got moments of stress and tension, you can kind of just relieve that by stepping out and, you know, looking at things completely differently. So I would advocate for everybody to have a dog in their office 
but also have a dog policy. Fantastic. Mm. Um, and I've got to ask, so you've started your business. How did you find growing and scaling your business? Because this is one of the interesting conversations I have with a lot of entrepreneurs is there's that moment when things shift, when you've started hiring people, when you're needing to sort of delegate more to the team, perhaps lose some of the total control over the business. How did you find that whole journey from effectively freelancer to where you are today with a, a good and growing team? Yeah, it's it's a really exciting roller coaster ride. There's the highs and then there are the lows. And um, from a resilience point of view, I think it's really important. Every entrepreneur understands what they're asking for themselves. Technically, they can be brilliant at doing the job, but to run a business, it's way more than being able to do the do. I don't think over the last 12 years of running Spotty Dog, there's been a single month when I haven't stepped off the cliff and thought, am I doing the right thing? But you have to go with your gut and you have to back yourself and believe yourself. If you don't, nobody, you know, how can you expect other people to invest in you if you if you don't invest in yourself? So I think believe in yourself, have that contingency, you know, going back to the military training. If, if things go wrong, you can do something about it, but react really quickly rather than sort of, um, panicking or sort of go, go becoming very insular so I think be prepared for to deviate from the plan but I have invested in the business at every turn every time we've had growth I've thought about okay now what can we, what can we do so and I always invest ahead of the curve so lots of businesses will often um, not expand until they're their team are at breaking points or until they've gotten you know a multi-million pound order or something like that for me if you're on a path to growth keep growing because actually if um levels of activity drop down then you've got the capacity in your system to do something with that whether it's market yourself or learn and develop it's not like that the resource that you've got is dead time so i would say if you are an entrepreneur you're you're doing that to grow a business right so always be confident in that path to growth and if things don't go to plan think about how you can use the resource and the capacity you've got in the team for good to 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 further inspire that growth down the down the line you can always do something to drive the change don't just sit and wait for it to happen and on that growth trajectory piece how did you approach starting that customer acquisition process you know when you're sort of sat there thinking just started the business now i need some customers how did you approach it what did you do next um, well, the first day one, day two, day three of Spotty Dog was um, was not great because it snowed. And I decided I started this business to be around for my kids and it snowed, so I would take them out and play in the snow. So day four, my family said, hey, how's the business going? And I thought, I should probably <laughs> get cracking. And um, I was so committed to my last business. Actually, ha- I hadn't made particularly deep plans on how I was going to grow Spotty Dog um so I took to LinkedIn and I connected with people and I said hey I'm here can I help you and that in the early years of Spotty Dog was 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 a really important source of kind of networking um then as we started growing in the, in the early days I didn't have time or money for a website um, I was either working on clients or I was kind of um you know busy so um my personal brand and my personal contacts was the uh, thing in the early days and remember right back then my plan was just to freelance and sort of keep a, a quite a low um had low aspirations as the business started to build and clients and contacts came back to me and started to ask me to do more that's when I took the decision that I'm going to do this properly I'm going to hire somebody we're going to grow and then of course then you 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 have the responsibilities and cost base that you can't just sit and wait for it to happen so, of course, our approach being a marketing comms business is to 
you know, put that front and centre of everything we do. So I always think that our our online properties are our digital shop window. So we have to, and our best of breed aspirations mean that we have to make sure that we're, you know, kind of leading with best practice ourselves. So I think with that always on brand communication message, that keeps us relevant, it keeps us on the radar of a lot of organisations and customers. Most of our, and clients, most of our work comes through referral. We don't do a lot of pitches. Um, so that's good because, you know, pitching and sort of chasing rabbits can take a lot of energy. So um, I think that always on brand communications is, is critical and that's what I'd advocate for all organisations. Brilliant. So you started very much with that, putting yourself out there, developing the personal brand and now very much focused on that, that business brand and being that trusted organisation to go to. So flash forward a little bit from those early days to the last couple of years of the pandemic. Uh, I know that the PR industry was one of the industries really hard hit in those early days. How did you as a leader who's built up that business find that time? You know, how did you respond? Well, there were certainly <coughs> challenges for agencies and consultancies that were working in sectors that hit, were hit really hard, um, leisure, hospitality, um, travel. But actually, there were areas of the industry that were in quite high demand within the PR space, particularly within business to business. Um, so the, so it was about pivoting really quickly. I mean, fundamentally, the pandemic um, uh, you know, that drove an immediate change for all organisations. And, you know, when there's change, you need to communicate it. In fact, the pandemic, and there's uh, industry research that demonstrates this, the pandemic really elevated the um, recognition for the role of communications professionals. There was a lot of organisations that obviously furloughed a variety of people, but often it was the communications professionals that, that were the guys still working on the front line because they had to be the... Um, the, the people that were helping to communicate out to stakeholders, whether that was customers, internal uh, people or, you know, kind of wider society. So actually the pandemic uh, shone the spotlight on the power of communications. And that's something uh, with my Chartered Institute of Public Relations um, president hat on, I can see that continues, which is, is good for our industry because we working in the industry have always known the power of communications um, but now we've got wider recognition across our stakeholder audience for for the impact that we can help drive. Now you mentioned your Chartered Institute of Public Relations hat. Um, outside that very busy day job as you say you're, you're president of the CIPR. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about that role? Yeah I mean it's a complete privilege to wear the hat of president this year. It's a, a voluntary role and I'm very proud that I was elected by my peers to take on that responsibility. Um, it's uh, a year this year that I'm serving and it's about, you know, uh, demonstrating the value of public relations, both to our wider organisation, but also people within the industry. Um, they say there's about 70,000 people that work within the PR sector. But unlike other industries like the law or medicine, where you have to have license to practice, you could work in public relations and may not have engaged within the professional um, qualifications. Um, uh, you may not be professionally qualified and you may not have committed to continuous professional development. I think it's absolutely essential because we're in an industry that changes every day. And so um, clients need to ensure that they're getting the best advice and someone that's engaged in um, chartered professional development it has committed to that continuous learning journey. The other thing, the other distinction is our code of conduct. And there are 
so many examples of bad practice, not by Chartered Institute Public Relations members, but, you know, the current lobbying um, scandal that we see in Westminster. Most of the people involved in that are people that don't work in communication. They're, they're people that have sidestepped into lobbying because they were doing other things. Maybe they were politicians, maybe they were special advisors, maybe they went to university with people or had people in the network. The point is, if you want to lobby... And lobbying is a really important part of our communications. You know, it helps change laws. It helps drive change. Um, but if you're an organisation that wants to lobby um, government, doing it with a chartered, qualified professional that abides by a code of conduct is your safest bet. So the one thing I really want to do this year is bang the drum and people, re- um, organisations to realise that if they're going to engage with a PR professional, we're a safer bet um, and, you know, do you want to put your reputation in the hands of someone who may not be qualified or may not have committed to that levels of pressure, professionalism? And on that, you know, that's clearly one massive industry trend that responding to the, the scandal that we are seeing in Parliament, as you say, around lobbying. Um, but what else do you see as the future trends for the PR industry? Like all industries, we're battling with the changing expectations of work and the people within it. Um, the PR industry is not a machine. Um, we are only as good as the people in it and um, people entering the profession have got changing expectations which is which is great because people are looking at everything differently and you know we're in an industry that needs to evolve when I first started back in 1998 I had a fax machine in a pager and we don't have those anymore so absolutely we should embrace new ways of doing things uh, new opportunities um, technology as well um, new ways to communicate but um The impact of COVID has changed expectations of work and we all need to look at embracing opportunities but also not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There were some reasons why things worked really, really well and um, I think we need to be careful that we don't throw everything out and miss um, lose things that were really precious in our industry. Like um, the fact that so much on-the-job training was driven by working with you know, uh, professionals that have been there before that had learned and can pass on that knowledge in our new way of working with spending less time together. We're starting to lose some of that, that expertise in our industry IP, which I think is a challenge we need to address. Picking up on people, this is an area that I know you're really passionate about and sort of supporting and creating a really inclusive work environment. And you've written passionately about diversity and inclusion, including how some of your own experiences as a member of the LGBTQ plus community have led to a bit of a wake up call. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'm happy to share because absolutely there's been a wake-up call. Um, I uh, joined some diversity inclusion training a couple of years ago and they talked about privilege and it wasn't something that I, you know, was e- I was even aware of. And when the world and the society you live in is built around your choices, you sail on and you don't realise that other people are having to jump over barriers that you don't even see. Um, and so this was brought really sharply into focus with my own experience. So I'm now um, with a wonderful lady who's absolutely fantastic. But if I take a step back and talk about Father's Day and the um, a, a lady of colour was telling me about she could never go into Clinton's and buy a Father's Day card because all the faces on the cards uh, were white. And of course, I go into Clinton's and my dad is white and so I can buy a card. So it's something that I never thought of because... I'm not having to look through the same lens that this lady over here is looking at. So I thought, gosh, that's a really good point. Now I step forward to my own situation. I'm trying to buy a Valentine's Day card for my partner and I have to go to a bit more effort. 
Now, I don't think my experiences I have um, being in a same-sex relationship are anywhere close to the struggles that so many other people have um, uh, been affected by. You know, some of my things are just funny. You know, we turn up to a hotel and every time they always say, oh, do you want a twin room? Because, you know, they just assume we're friends. And we say, no, that's fine. But the the point is, uh, I completely get, now that I'm part of a minority, I completely get the um the challenges that some people have faced every day for every part of their life so it's something now that I'm really determined in every choice I make so last week I did an event and we were doing a a breakout session involving chocolate and I bought dairy-free chocolate now a couple of years ago I just buy chocolate that I eat I wouldn't think about well not everybody can eat that sort of chocolate but now I'm thinking everything I do how do I make sure I'm um, accommodating everybody's different kind of um, needs so that's really really important there's a big job to do I'm learning every day but I just would really like to kind of speak out to everybody if you're part of a majority think and look differently to make sure that we're not excluding those that aren't shaped in the same image because you know otherwise you miss out on brilliant people and brilliant opportunities and um i just really salute those that have faced much bigger battles than me because uh, what what some people had to been have to go through is just incredible it's also changed our recruiting strategy as well um which you know from a from a business point of view is really important to me because i want to make sure as a team and as an industry we're reflective of the society we live in um and there's a lot of work to do in that area Brilliant. Picking up on that, because I know this is an area that a lot of organisations grapple with, how to do the right thing, how to do the best thing. In terms of that recruitment strategy and broadening that recruitment, is there anything that you found that has particularly worked for your business or any sort of advice you'd share with others who are looking at the same area? Yeah, I think we have to work really hard as um, when we're recruiting to reach out to all parts of society. Don't just stick a job advert or up um on your website or on linkedin because it's those people that are more connected that are already um have the biggest opportunities are often the people that find out about roles and get their foot in the door um so we've changed our recruitment process so in the old days if i had a great cv in i'd literally call them up you sound great come and have a chat to me um, and it might mean that if i got cvs sort of a couple of weeks later i'm kind of not that bothered because i've already found my my priority person and it's most likely the first person who's quick off the mark is somebody that's already well connected so we have made a conscious effort to every time we're recruiting we have quite a broad uh, we have a quite a long um, uh, recruiting period and we don't look at cvs until the entry period is over so we're not bringing bias into our kind of sifting process and think, oh, that person looks really good, let's get them in. Um, And then we score all of our CVs based on competency um, so that we have a reason and a basis. So if if we have to give someone the bad news and say, sorry, you didn't make it this time, we can kind of say, you didn't score so highly on your academic grades or you didn't show any initiative in your cover letter. So we can give some practical help to people to kind of keep working and develop their kind of um, application approach. Um, that's been really important to me. I have to say it's also hurt us a little bit because the war on talent at the moment means that having a four-week period for recruitment meant that we have lost some people um, along the way. Um, that you know they've been snapped up by other people, but it's a really difficult one because I'm so committed to our DNI um, uh, manifesto commitment. Um, I, I, I 
I think that that's a you know that's a compromise that we have to make and I hope that other people will be inspired by our commitment in this area being so strong that that will say a lot about us and our company and our values and the things that we prioritize over making a quick uh, business decision. As you say, it's been about being very authentic to that employer brand and employer ethos, isn't it? And sort of living what you say you do. Brilliant. Well, you've had a fantastic career. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. A few twists and turns along the way. When you think back across that career, are there any leaders or individuals that have inspired you along the way? Oh, that's a great story. A great question. Um, I guess my first boss who gave me that opportunity because she could see the talent in me um and she was really tough as well she said to me I don't ever want to hear any um any reasons why this can't happen I need solutions if you can't do this job okay that's fine we'll find a way around but tell me give me a solution I don't ever want to hear that I haven't got time to do something or um you can't you know it can't be done we've got to find a way because clients are coming to us with challenges and we've got to find that solution so she gave me some tough love Uh, she gave me a lot of support as well but that's that's how life is and I think that um I take the same leadership um within supporting my own team and I say to them you know life is not all rainbows and unicorns um you know particularly when I'm interviewing and saying I'd love you to come and work with us and this is what we're all about we're best of breed but to be best of breed that doesn't come easy um so absolutely it's not about a kind of sweatshop and working um you know hard and uh, you know we absolutely should all be here to uh, work to live and so we have got a flexible working policy. Um, I like to understand uh, for my team what they're in it for and how I can support them to achieve their life goals. Um, but um, in the workplace, you know, the, it goes with the territory that the, the certain commitments we make. So it, it has to be a two-way street. So I think that that being pragmatic about what we're all here for is really, really important so that we manage expectations that focus, like I say, on continuous improvement, that when you're working, you're always working towards being best in breed. I do love all your dog puns, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) They are fantastic. So I've got a final question for you. If you could share just one piece of advice for an aspiring CEO, what would it be? I would say never let anybody say something can't be achieved. I have had across my career in my life lots of people have told me you can't you know I remember once I was interviewed and someone said to me perhaps you should spend more time with your children which I thought I don't think this interview is going terribly badly uh, terribly well but you know one person's opinion is you know is somebody else's I don't know the phrase but I just say don't let people kick you and um, say something can't be done you know you have to find a way and that's not easy but Anything is possible if you're prepared to set your mind to it and achieve it. Um, so if you hit those roadblocks, find a way to get over or find someone with a ladder to help you. Don't do it on your own. But anything is possible. Not easy, but um, go for it. And, um, you know, if you have a dream, you know, visualise it and see it and you can do it. And I think the, the dream that I had when I, um, a couple of years in Spotty Dog, you know, I always said... 
oh, I love what I'm doing, but I don't think David Beckham will ever work on any of my campaigns. Well, a couple of years ago, we did a photo call with David Beckham. So I think, <laughs> job done. <laughs> so now I've got really big ambitions, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, you know, see, it's, it's tough being in the CEO chair. Everyone comes to you with the problems. Um, and, you know, I find a way through ask for help there's people out there that want to help you to achieve and great cheerleaders on on the sidelines so um you know take that help and get over that hill and when you're at the top enjoy enjoy the view as well (laughs) fantastic rachel thank you so much for sharing your fantastic career journey with us some fascinating twists and turns in there lots of insights lots of nuggets of advice and i think your clear drive focus passion and also how much you care how much you care about your people you care about your industry has really shone through so Thank you very much. And for those listening, don't forget you can subscribe to CEO Stories wherever you get your podcasts and you can follow us on social media at GRB Ham Chambers on Twitter and Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm.